Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper past the short sound bites in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. This is Stephen Moe. Today we've got Michelle Sharp, who's the CEO at Kilmarnock Enterprises, and she's going to give us some really interesting insights about her life, her journey so far, and what it's like to be running a social enterprise right here in Christchurch. Um, This is an extract from one of the things that really stood out to me. I think if I could do one thing differently, it was understanding the importance of vulnerability, because we would not be sitting where we're sitting now had I not been prepared to be vulnerable because the risk of not making this happen was so large that I would never have gone there because right. I would be you know, fearful of failure and letting everybody down. Mm. So I think if there's one thing I could do would be that is to understand the importance of vulnerability. So just before we dive into that interview with Michelle, I wanted to give a flavor for some of the upcoming guests. So the episode after this is going to be Tim Jones and we're going to be talking about B Corps and why you might want to be one or at least understand what they are. And then we're going to be talking with Neta Igos, who's actually a social enterprise lawyer, but is now working in Tokyo uh, with Pecha Kucha. And then we're also going to be talking to Mark Ambundo, and he's from Kenya, but now lives here in New Zealand. So he has some really interesting observations on Western culture from his perspective. If you don't want to miss any of those upcoming episodes, then the easiest way is to subscribe to this podcast. Hey, the only other thing to say is that this is definitely going to be a word-of-mouth show. So if you find the content is helpful, please consider um, sharing it with other people. You can do that by, um, in iTunes on the bottom left, there's a box with an arrow pointing up. If you hit that button, then you can share that with other people. And consider leaving a rating or review in iTunes as well. That will help get the word out. Now, let's jump into the interview with Michelle. All right, so I'm here with Michelle Sharp, the CEO of Kilmarnock. Uh, Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Stephen. We're going to talk quite a lot about Kilmarnock later on in the interview, but I just would love to back up right to the beginning of your life and just hear a bit about your own journey, your own story. And in this podcast, we look a lot at purpose. And um, so I think sometimes those formative years, you know, as a child, Later on, you look back and you realize that, that was important. So do you mind just telling us a little bit about your childhood, where, you, where you're from, and kind of bring us up to present day? Absolutely. So actually, probably important to start with my parents, if that's okay. So my mother is French, um, born and brought up in Madagascar. Um, so she, as a child herself, um, was in an environment where she witnessed a lot of poverty. So that probably formed and formulated a lot of her thinking around the world. My father was the son of a diplomat and traveled the world living in primarily third world countries. Um, The thing he struggled with is living in an embassy, wanting for nothing, and literally outside the doors of some of those embassies, there were people starving to death. So when my parents met um, in London, they came at the world with a very similar perspective. Um, They then went on to moved to Spain where they had my brother and I and at the age of five as a family we moved to Mexico. Um, These were the days where Mexico City suffered a lot with smog so we made a decision to move up into the mountains and as part of that we basically um, we had to drive through and we, we lived right on top there were these four houses of a village a shantytown in Mexico City on the outskirts. And I guess for me, um, that was my first um, ability to witness my parents and how they went about doing things. So my father was a businessman, an accountant by trade, and my mother a teacher. And the second that we moved there, um, they made sure that we understood that we belonged to that village. Just because we lived a different lifestyle to the villagers made us no different as human beings. And we basically participated in village life. If there was a fiesta, we would turn up with food. We would be, we would see ourselves as being no different to um, to the to the villagers. And um, and in fact, many of the children were our friends in you know exactly in the same way as when we went to school to our private school. No different um, in our eyes. I witnessed my parents doing some incredible um, good in the village. Um, and for me, the thing that when I look back now really struck me. It it was the way that they um, enabled these villagers to basically trade 
to allow them to support their families. So it was kind of almost helping them with a micro-enterprise lens in the world. And some of that could be really simple things by understanding the barriers to trade. And a, an example used to be that um, my mother had this kind of taxi service that she used to use where people could write their names down on a list to be able to go into the city every day when she was dropping us at school, allowing them much quicker access to the city rather than relying on public transport and therefore allowing them longer hours to trade and then she would pick them up on the way back. And I even remember um, on a couple of occasions, if not more, my mother saying, I'm really sorry, kids, but I can't take you to school today because we're oversubscribed. It's more important that the villagers um, are able to go into the city and trade to be able to feed their families. A, a day off school for you isn't going to make any difference. So very, very much um, a lot of purpose behind what they were doing. And my father did a lot in terms of helping them with accounting and business practices and things. So I guess at the time I didn't realise it, but when I look back um, in those years, I really witnessed the, um, the incredible things that can happen when you allow business to, to do good. So, that, so that's, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you're a very young age, but you're being exposed to a different way of thinking entirely. that you probably didn't even process at the time, you know? No. Uh, but now looking back with those lenses, uh, yeah, it's similar to me with my parents, I think. So, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's quite really fascinating. Good. And it's in many ways, it's only been in the last decade or so that I've really realized how much, you know, you start reflecting on what's formed mm. your opinions on life and why, why am I so driven to doing the things that I'm driven to do? And I go back and you think, gosh, that no doubt was the start of it all. Yeah. So what ages were you there? You moved when you were five to, to Mexico? Yeah, five to Mexico yep. um, mm -hmm. and left when I was about 12 or so. So, right. yeah. So. Wow. And so that must have been in terms of culture, like that's a formative time of life, Entirely. isn't it? So, um, yeah, w talk a little bit about that. Maybe was that, um, where, well, maybe where did you go next? And, and did you take that culture with you when you went? Or? Yeah, quite a change, really. So we then spent a year in Chicago, and that was um, that was an absolute blast. We lived in a Hilton hotel, I believe, um, at the time. And um, my brother and I had suddenly all this exposure to technology that wasn't available in Mexico. So really quite a crazy year of our lives. Um, yeah, but fantastic at the same time. Uh, from there, we en then ended up going to the UK. So my biggest culture shock, I think, actually was when I arrived in the UK, um, uh, predominantly because in Mexico, we lived a life where, um, with high security as well. So just because of my grandfather, my grandfather was British ambassador at the time. So we had quite a lot of high security. So going to the UK and suddenly having an element of freedom was very, very strange for my brother and I. Um, I um, got totally immersed in um, the UK way of living um, and very quickly realised that, you know, children can be quite cruel, can't they? So the first thing that I was met with is um, the fact that suddenly, because I looked different, I sounded different, I ate different things, that I had quite a lot of bullying going on when I was um, a youngster. But in a funny way, um, I guess I'm, I'm lucky enough that I was self-assured. It made me really... Um, look at the fact that if it was happening to me, it was probably happening to others. And even back then, we our school was particularly good at having um, a class for, for children with learning difficulties. And I saw how they were so excluded from so many things, which made me so cross. And I guess I had a, an element of understanding, having undergone quite a bit of bullying when I went to the school. And I, I would go out of my way to make sure they were included. And I, I guess that's a drive I've had all my life is inclusion, giving mm. everyone an opportunity to, to be included. Um, I was very ambitious, uh, I always have been. And for me, I guess the, my turning point in terms of turning these people around was when I was voted on as head girl by the students. So from a point where I'd arrived at the school and I was really very much seen as a target mm. to being seen as a leader was, um, was quite remarkable mm. for me. Um, and it sounds like those are quite formative um formative memories for you, you know, that, that to be inclusive, to reach out to people who are being excluded. Um, mm. Yeah, it's quite interesting, yeah, isn't it, to think about that as a, as a teenager, that that was something you were so aware of. Entirely. I recall being as young as five years old and seeing that there was one person as a kid who was being left out of a situation and not understanding why I seemed to be the only one who noticed that, the only one that wanted to bring them into the circle or whatever it may be. So it's clearly something that I've 
I've really I was born with, I guess, and it's it's a desire of mine always to make sure that people, you know, who want to be included, mm. are included. Mm. And it sounds like your parents may have modelled that for you Entirely, as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I was very very lucky to have. And and I, I think you know part of that my mother my mother's story. Just going back to her quickly, she grew up in Madagascar, not wanting for anything, and then um, due to um, political um, unrest, had to leave Madagascar with just about the only things that she could carry, and ended up in Europe at a time of depression where she went from having, you know, needing nothing to having nothing mm. and suddenly finding herself on the margins of society. So I think that in itself taught her some huge lessons that she was then able to you know, pass on to my brother and I. So, mm. yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I just find it fascinating to hear about those early years for people and then to look at what's happened in the life since, you know, and, and just reflect and Oh, there were strands there, even at the beginning, as a five-year-old, you know. Yeah. So, so we're up to um, maybe leaving high school. What was it that happened next for you? Your base, was that in London? or is uh, that No, this is in a um, town called Newbury, okay. which is um, just west of London, about an hour outside of London. So, again, I think I mentioned that I was quite an ambitious child, um, and... Um, I had made a decision, uh, so uh, the other thing I haven't mentioned is I am highly dyslexic. So for many years of my life, struggled with the, not understanding why my brain didn't quite work in the same way as my peers. But at a very young age, again, about the age of six, I came across um, one of my teachers was a mathematician. And suddenly my kind of world lit up mm. because I could understand numbers a lot better than I could understand words. So at this point, I'm um, finishing high school and working out what I'm doing next. And I had made a decision years beforehand that I would go and do a degree in mathematics. But chose to, um, to use those three years at university to further myself as such. So I approached a company who now has since become Vodafone and asked them if they would be prepared to sponsor me to go to university with the view that what I really wanted to do is to use those three years to get to understand business. So that every holiday I would be placed in a different department within the organisation so that by the time I left university with a degree um, in maths, I also had a really good business understanding. Mm. And they agreed. So my claim to fame is I am Vodafone's first ever sponsored undergraduate, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I went on and um, then helped them develop a program that they now run, which is incredibly successful. So, oh, yeah, really interesting. good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, so I, I um, went through university, came out with um, my degree in mathematics, and, um, and in that time had uh, accumulated quite a lot of business experience for Vodafone. And when I left... Um, university they offered me a job in one of their marketing departments which was great so that's where my career started mm. I guess and, and because you'd been able to see different parts of the organization that that fit what you Entirely. wanted to do so yes. that, that's great. they kept trying to push me into more of a finance role right. because of my degree mm -hmm. but I realized I was a people person you know mm -hmm. very early on mm -hmm. even in doing my degree I realized I was probably quite different to some of the other students and never was going to be as good at maths as they were I was much more of a people person so mm -hmm. really enjoyed the marketing and mm -hmm. sales side so of that kind of combined combined everything that you you know you've been studying but then able to reach out to people as yes, well. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And so you were with Vodafone for a while? Yes, I was with Vodafone for quite a long time, um, uh, specifically working in their uh, data department, mobile data. And um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I, I guess one of the, th the major things, uh, my successes, was bringing BlackBerry to Europe um, and helping BlackBerry really take off in Europe, which was very exciting to see. So what did that involve when you say bringing BlackBerry um, it, it hadn't been in Europe before then? Because it, was it from Canada? Or Canada, that's yeah. right, yeah. So our um, Research in Motion, which is the organization, mm -hmm. had um, implemented it in Canada. And um, it was a time, an era, where mobile data really was very, it was talked about, but nothing really happened. Mm. And I think most organizations were taking a very consultative approach towards trying to sell mobile data with very little result because people didn't really understand what was possible. So um, we made a decision to, um, to really cut down the choices for customers and BlackBerry being one of them. And the results were huge, really. We started seeing, I mean, it's one of those beautiful graphs that you see with growth, you know, month on month growth in terms of sales, which was fantastic, yeah. Um, I so that must have been kept you quite busy as well, though. Oh, incredibly so. Yeah, yeah. It was, and it was, you know, great, great time, um, huge exposure from a business perspective. Um, and I, I was young, and in fact, I, the joke is, I, every time I leave Vodafone to go to a service provider, they keep acquiring them back again, so my CV looks like I've been Vodafone from start to finish, but actually, I did leave Vodafone quite a few times to try and explore other avenues, um, and then Vodafone would buy the organization back. So, uh, from a career perspective, it really helped me, because every time 
the company I was working for was acquired by Vodafone, I ended up somehow being the only person in the whole organization that had that role. So I became uh, you know, quite senior in Vodafone at a very young age, which was fantastic, mm. um, which was appealing to my ambitious side. Right. And finally, um, I ended up uh, uh, being a founding director of a company called Tomiko, along with a couple of others. One of the guys had made his money through the sale of one of the service providers back to Vodafone. He made significant millions. Um, and um, so we formed Tomiko together. And it was a kind of a one-stop shop to the small and uh, medium enterprise market for all IT, um, telco, you know, solutions. And that, again, provided me with some incredible experience because a startup is really quite different to uh, mm. a corporate that's already um, a large entity. Um, a lot of fun, a lot of stress, um, and I think five years or so into it, I made a decision that I was on the verge of corporate burnout. And by then I had two young children who didn't just about even know my name. So mm. made a very deliberate decision to readdress my work-life balance. Mm. So, Well, just before we get into that in a bit more detail, because I, I want to learn a bit more about that, but just mm. thinking about the startup days and, you know, being involved in an IT startup area, um, what, what were some of the things that you learned from that experience or some of the principles that maybe have applied going forward? Um, yes, that's a really good question, actually. Once again, um, I realized that for me, it's all about people. Mm -hmm. So when you're, I have a very quirky recruitment um, ways. I, I basically recruit people from the community. So it's very, very, very rare that I've ever placed an advert in anything. I, I see good people, I keep my eye on them, and then I recruit them at the right time. And it could simply be something as simple as a um, supermarket checkout, and I deliberately will go and watch that person and how they interact and how they deal with you know, grumpy customers. Mm. And if they are really good in that environment, I know they'd be great on our customer service desk, let's say, as an right. example. Yeah. So, mm. um, so I had deliberately handpicked all the people that worked at this startup. And at a stage of a startup and high, high growth, it is incredibly stressful if you care a lot about customer service and things and you're not able to deliver at times what you want to deliver mm. in terms of the, the high quality. And I realized that for me, looking after the people was the most important thing because if your employees are happy, they're going to do a great job for, for the customer. And I guess the frustrations that I came across, and I, I guess I, I couldn't understand how others didn't get it, is some of my um, co-workers at senior uh, management level didn't get that. They were basically thinking that running a company, you do so from an Excel spreadsheet rather than from mm. you know actually engaging with people and, and putting into people and you, you get results out. So mm. um, I guess the other thing that I learned is as an employer, I always wanted to give people opportunities. So somebody that, you know, maybe a school leaver that came to us that had high aspirations, I loved seeing them succeed. I loved giving them the tools and the confidence to actually go on and do a lot more out of their, you know, get a lot more out of their career than they might have otherwise been allowed to. So, mm. yeah, very much the people side of things. Yeah, and it sounds like you, well, would you say that when you meet someone, you can tell quite a lot about them from that initial meeting and interaction is that yeah that's I think what I'm getting so I think of? I have a very good sense of um yeah. you know um of, of a person mm. very easily mm. um and I guess I take you know the, the, as an example here at Kamanak I am um, I say to everybody people say to me when they're walking around there are 95 of us how do you know everybody's names and I say I make it you know I make it a point to know people's names but not just their names I want to know their names I want to know something current in their lives and I want to know something that's important to them and I think if you take that approach approach in life, you, the, the culture that you can create is really quite different to it being just a transaction between two people. Mm, that's really good. That's really wise. <laughs> mm. Because it, it, it ultimately, any business or anything, it comes back to relationship, doesn't Entirely. it? And relationship is the key. And if you can have a team, a culture, then you will succeed. That's right. I mean, yeah. we've just here had 13 new starters and I, you know, I always make a point of any new starter sitting down with them and explaining our culture. Our culture is so important to us. I mean, it's everything. And telling them exactly that. Get, you know, take time to get to know each other. Take time to get to know what matters in somebody's life because like that you can really be a team and you can achieve so much more, especially when times are hard. Mm. So much more. Yeah. Mm. And just, um, just curious, you know, you, you were in Mexico for quite a while. Do you think any of that culture in terms of Latin American culture or the, the different approaches to, to people. Do you think some of that had a, a part to play? Or? Oh, surely. Yeah. It has to. I mean, the culture there is all about families. Yeah. I mean, if well, you're that's not blood-related, you're a family, aren't you? Yeah. You know, the village I grew up with in was a family. We underwent significant earthquakes there. Mm. It was a very, very, very stressful time. The city just about collapsed. 
And at one point, in fact, we thought my mother had gone because she, for three days, we couldn't get hold of her. And right. it's amazing how the village just becomes your family and your rock. Uh, it's a very, very different culture to to some Western cultures, actually. Mm. Yeah. Because you can, you really benefited from that in a way. You know, like uh, every culture is unique and different, but um, having that Latin American culture, that that sense of community and that mm. r- importance of relationship, sounds like it entirely it yeah. came out later. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and yeah. a lot of that is also I'm really, really lucky with my family, um, especially my mother's family. That's kind of something that we've, you know, we we all live across the world, but we have such a sense of belonging to mm. each other, mm. which is everybody who meets us says that they've never seen anything quite like it. It's right. quite remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So we've talked a little bit about startup days and, yep. and the hours and things. And, and so you feel like you're getting to a point of burnout. Um, how do you how do you recognize that? Or, you know, how do you have the self-awareness to know, oh, I'm on the edge here? Or do you have the self-awareness? Because I think sometimes people maybe get to the edge and maybe fall off or yep. get to the other side. And then they realize, actually, looking back, I was about mm. to hit the wall. <laughs> but what was your experience yeah, of that? Yeah, for me, it was actually quite a physical experience. Mm. I ended up one day, something, I was incredibly stressed. I, w- I tell you what I was feeling. I was feeling like I was doing a bad job of being a mother. Mm. I was feeling I was doing a bad job of being a wife, a friend, mm. a daughter, um, and also a business leader. I felt like there was clearly too much. That I was overwhelmed in, in life. And for me, the, the, the kind of crunch point was actually quite, um, quite physical. Something um, at home, I was at home at the time, something quite minor triggered me and I ended up literally, this sound came out of my body. It was like a whale sound that I hadn't intentionally created. Mm. And I kind of went, whoa, that's, that's a signal. <laughs> that there's a bit too much going on in my life. And I, I realized that the environment that I was in, the startup environment I was in, well, by then we were five years old and we were very, very big and with huge growth, mm. was quite toxic and I, I clearly had a very different way of wanting to operate a business mm. um, to my fellow directors mm. um, who were just about the money. Mm. For me, it wasn't about the money, even though I was the major, you know, one of the major shareholders. It mm. wasn't about the money. It was about the people mm. and being a good person and helping people get ahead in life, you know. And I think because of that, it became quite a toxic environment mm. and um, I had to get away from it. Yeah. So. so is that when New Zealand came on the scene? Or <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I got as far away. I knew I had to go far. It was my baby. You know, the yeah. company was my baby because although I was only one of, you know, one of a few founding directors, I guess I was the one that kind of created what it was and I was the, the one that um, managed the people. So it was very much my baby. Mm. So at the time, I really realized that if I was going to exit I had to go far away mm. so how far can you well, go <laughs> yeah that's right you can't get much further can you <laughs> so, yep. so you so you moved it. all that work that was in London was it or you? Um, no it was in the East Midlands actually yeah. oh, okay yeah. yep yep so you're leaving England behind leaving Europe behind the high pressure stress there mm-hmm. and moving to New Zealand where did or what happened next did you come straight to Christchurch or were you in yeah other so um, we decided clearly one of us uh, my, other my husband and I needed to have some income so um, he applied for a role at Telecom at the mm-hmm. time, um, or Spark now, and he actually just about left within a week. And I, based, I, I um, shut up shop as such, closed the home and got rid of, you know, finished our lives in the UK right. over the next three months and then met him out here in Christchurch. Right. So a very big change of um, pace for me. So mm-hmm. I made a very deliberate decision again not to go straight back into work, but the reasons that I was leaving the UK was really important to me to reacquaint myself with my children, mm-hmm. um, who kept calling me by the nanny's name <laughs> by accident. <laughs> you kind of know that something's something not quite on. right. <laughs> yeah. um, and luckily enough, you know, they were two and four, so they mm-hmm. don't recall. It was great. It, you mm. know, we made the decision at the right time. Young Had enough, I left yeah. it a few more years, it might have been an issue with my daughter. Mm. But um, it was great. I was able to spend the time that I wanted to settle them into um, a new, different world, a different life. And um, gosh, it's the best decision we ever, ever, ever made. Mm. I don't regret it for one minute. Wow. In fact, I get quite scared at the thought that we may not have made that decision. Right. Almost, you know, you think. Because the temptation must have been there if you were right at the beginning of that startup and it was going well and you know that's right you could have gone the other direction couldn't you and and gone harder gone further with that yes that's right so um we came to Christchurch uh, towards the end of 2009 um and I very deliberately uh took well I gave myself as long as I needed but uh, in the end I took six months to get the kids settled into preschool and um, my older daughter into school um before I started looking at what that meant for me in terms of my career yeah yeah and Christchurch, of course, that was two two years before earthquakes came. It was about six months was before it? the September okay. quake. Yeah, yep. yeah. 
and um, uh, yeah, maybe just describe a little bit about that. Um, Yeah, so the September quake, um, clearly, which happened at four o'clock in the morning or whatever, um, my husband at the time was actually on a golf trip down in Dunedin, so I was home alone with the kids, not that um, quite new to to New Zealand. Um, Having experienced some major earthquakes in my life before, I straight away knew what it was. A lot of people talked about the fact that that September quake, they thought like a truck was coming through their house or something. Mm. But for me, it was a very real, immediate um, realization that that it was an earthquake and it was a big earthquake. So um, grabbed the kids and um, and uh, got under the table. And uh, actually, my poor mother. I made a. I, I couldn't. I didn't know any phone numbers off by heart. So the only one I did know was my mother back in the UK. Right. So I, my phone was out of battery. My mobile was out of battery. So I grabbed the home landline and I dialed her number and it went straight through to voicemail. I was halfway through leaving her a message to say there's been a big earthquake, but I've got the kids under the table. Then there was a big aftershock and we were quite near the kitchen by then and everything fell on the floor with a big crash bang right. and the electricity <laughs> went and the phone went dead. So my poor mother picked up this <laughs> voicemail not knowing what on earth had happened. But anyway, um, interestingly, uh, after that, we clearly had the February quake. And by then, my husband in particular was really struggling. I think as somebody who um, probably has a lot of control in his life in terms of his career and things, he felt totally overwhelmed by the fact he couldn't control these earthquakes. And he himself in February had been in a um, horrible situation in the city centre. So my company that I'd left back in the UK made an offer to me um, Mm -hmm. to basically pay me twice as much as uh, the salary that I'd left on with full flexibility to do whatever I needed to with the kids. Because by that point, I think they'd realised that with me leaving, the culture of the organisation was disintegrating bit by bit. Right. And um, we talked about it between the two of us and my husband was quite keen to go back because he was not coping with the earthquake situation. But I, I knew that if I went back to Tomiko... I would, that would be it. I would never leave again. So I was very, very strong in saying that, that no, I, was, I wanted to make New Zealand home. And yes, there'd been earthquakes. And yes, there, was, you know, there were issues and it was scary and all of that. But as a family, we could stick together and we could make it work. We needed good plans and everything in terms of if there was another earthquake. And, and, and so, so you made that decision even having only been here for, what, a couple? Well, not even a year. Uh, just over a year. Just over a year. Yeah, That's yeah. interesting because, you know, that type of event, obviously raises many questions in people's minds and you know to be offered a job that you'd been doing but being paid twice as much that's probably pretty tempting for many people um it was but by this point i had actually joined kilmarnock i was i'd been at kilmarnock for six months Mm. and i had very very quickly realized that everything that i had done in my life had basically led me to the point of coming across Kilmarnock. Mm. So by then I was absolutely, um, you know, just all over, just overwhelmed by the incredible place that Kilmarnock was. Yeah. And so that was only after about six months. That's all. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... You, you knew know, right away. I think for most people who have a tour through Kilmarnock will know exactly what I mean mm. by that. It mm. is a very, very special place. Mm. And the thing that excited me is I knew that I could make something that was already incredible totally magical. Mm because I could see so much opportunity for taking it up to a whole other level. And, um, and I hadn't even got started, you know. So, yeah, and plus the whole readdressing of work-life balance. I, I just, uh, it just, it was a horrible thought to go back into that toxic environment I'd left mm. to get to the point where I wasn't seeing my children anymore. I was missing out on, you know, them growing up. And um, yeah, so even just after a year of being here. Plus the other thing was is that I'm not somebody that runs away, you know. It was clear that the city had significant challenges ahead of it. And I felt we were here when it happened. We were residents when it happened. We, mm. you know, we should be part of um, the solution to to what's happened. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. And I guess you saw a future here. Um, Entirely. It, yeah. 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 For my, not just for ourselves, but for our children in particular. Yeah. Very different world to the UK. Yeah. But Can you describe a little bit about that? Like what was going through, what were some of the things that, that meant New Zealand and Christchurch represented a future for your children? Well, I think just the whole environment, you know, it's it's such a greener, nicer, open um, space. And I'm a very outdoorsy person. I love the fact that we could literally step out of the house and do incredible things that were on our doorstep that you kind of really have to plan around in the UK, not only in terms of the accessibility, but also in terms of even having the time to do these things. It just felt like a purer way of living, um, safer way of living. And... Uh, slower, not in a, not, yeah, slower in terms of the, that whole corporate treadmill. I've managed to get off the corporate treadmill, which is really hard to do. And I just did not want to go back onto it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, so that kind of leads us up to Kilmarnock. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about it, because some people who are listening um, will never have heard of it. Mm. <laughs> so do you mind just giving the, the brief uh, overview, if you like, and then we can dive into more detail? Absolutely. So Kilmarnock was established 60 years ago, so this year is actually our 60th anniversary, so quite special. Um, we were formed as a result of an incredible forward-thinking um, lady, um, woman, Miss Christopher Robinson, who um, was an academic here at, in Christchurch. And she struggled with the fact that people with learning disabilities were somehow um, not to be seen behind closed doors, institutionalised. But she'd clearly had some contact with um, people with disabilities and she realised that actually that was just wrong on every level. That not only did they have so much to learn from, and they could learn, but they had so much to give as well. So she um, created Kilmarnock and it was a place where people could come and spend their days doing forming relationships, friendships, and doing, um, I guess, learning some skills. And it could be something like basket weaving, or it could be, you know, all sorts of things. So Kilmarnock was formed really by, it was her idea, um, with some strong patrons and, um, and I guess, a bit of um, financial support from government. As the years went on, um, the organisation, the patrons started dwindling um, and government funding didn't increase. So by the time I came across Kilmarnock, it was really in a very difficult position. Um, it was trying to um, trade for some of its income, but probably not doing it too well. It had a very charity um, mentality towards the way that it operated, defensive um, relationship with the community and saw government as kind of its lifeline really. Um, so that was so, so having come from a UK tech startup, you see this opportunity. <laughs> yes. Did you know right away that this was something that you wanted to do? Did you feel that passion begin at the beginning? I mean, you know, like the first day that you started, or was it? How did that happen? Did it grow uh, gradually? Yeah. It, through my um, interview process, when mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to walk through the factory, mm -hmm. I kind of went away and thought, "Oh my word, what an opportunity!" It seemed to kind of allow me to to um, influence a thing that had been um, upsetting me all my life, which is the lack of inclusion of, of people. But what excited me is the fact that I had all these business tools, all these business um, ideas, that if I implemented them correctly, mm. could actually leverage the social impact of what we were doing. And, and I had no understanding of the terminology social enterprise at the time. I just kind of figured that actually if I apply this, this and this, yep we could do so much more and it just excited me. It was just, um, yeah, um, and that's exactly what I did. So from day one, I, even, I came in as business development manager as a 20 hour a week um, role and very quickly realized that we had to stop going out to meeting um, the business market with sort of cap in hand almost saying, please, Mr. And Mrs. Customer, do you have anything deserving for our employees to do? And actually start working out what were our unique selling points? What is it that we were good at? Mm -hmm. And by understanding that, going to the market and hitting the market head on and starting to win work on merit, which really, really changes the relationship mm -hmm. um, from day one. So I don't know if you recall, but um, so six months into um, starting Kilmarnock, we, um, we lost the Anzac Poppy contract, which mm. was the assembly of the Anzac Poppy. And for us at the time, that was a third of our income, wow. which I mean, when I joined Kilmarnock from an organization in the UK where we would get nervous if one customer was responsible for more than, let's say, 3% of your income to yeah. having one that was responsible for a third, I always thought that's just a huge risk and mm. was you know, wanting to diversify um, that risk, um, diversify our contract streams to be able to um, get rid of that risk. But what I feared happened, and um, we lost a contract that we had held for 33 years. We'd manufactured in that time 43.3 million poppies. Mm. But out of the door um, walked a third of our income, a lot of pride, and it really started making us question our, our existence, I have to say. Mm. Uh, I'm pleased to say it was the best thing that ever happened to us. Right. Because it really allowed us to get back down to ground level and say, right, what is it that we are here to do and how are we going to do it? Mm. Let's put a robust plan in place and let's start working on that in order to make sure that we're self-sustainable and we can achieve much higher social impact than what we are doing mm. today. So it was through that crisis that you had to go back to the drawing board and, well, what's our vision? Why are we here? Entirely, yeah. 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 So, 
Um, I was appointed as, as CEO four and a half years ago, and that was really the time where there was an opportunity to actually bring the board together with mm. the management team and, and do that in earnest to say, right, what is it that we want to achieve? And, and I'm thrilled to say that we created at the time a 2020 um, plan that we managed to deliver in full by 2017, which was as a result of having very clear understanding of what it was we were going to do. Mm. And it's that that's led us to um, to this building, to Basecamp, to being able to build Basecamp, which is a, a huge next um, step in our in mm. next chapter of Kilmarnock. So, so before we talk about the building, just how would you describe that mentality shift? You know, you described going to businesses with your cap in hand. Mm. Was that because people had the mindset that this was a charity or what, what, what was it that was causing that, do you think? Yeah. And what was it that shifted the, the mindset that you were actually going out and we have a valuable service to provide. You know, it sounds like there was something that happened there. Yeah, well, it's a culture thing, I believe. You know, I think we just didn't believe in ourselves. We didn't understand, or we didn't take time to understand what we were good at. Mm. We just assumed that the only way we could win business was to make people feel sorry for us which is exactly not what we wanted to do. You know, you, mm. you start with that relationship and it's, it's, you know, our relationships with our customers now are I- entirely equal. They, we need each other as much as we need each other rather than it being kind of, a, it's more than a supply-customer relationship, in fact. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a cultural shift. It's a mentality shift. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's taking time to understand what is, it, what is it that we have that's unique and special and then to go out there and to talk about it yeah. and to prove to to the business world in that case that that actually it is correct you know you know, we don't have customers like air new zealand and fonterra and the goffs group and foodstuffs by not doing what we say we do mm. we, we we are very good at quality we are very good at customer service we're very good at being nimble and agile and turning things around quickly and we're great fun to do business with and mm. i think businesses really like that the fact that we have a um, you know a culture of excellence, a culture of customer, ser- uh, um, a culture of health and safety, I should say, mm. of health and well-being, people really like to engage with that. Mm. But it, 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 we had to just understand what that was, and to start speaking about it. You had to get your story right, and then That's you had right. to be uh, willing and able to go out and tell the story in a compelling way. Correct. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Because so, I, I think, think I think many organisations could learn from you because maybe they're sitting around going, well. What is our story? <laughs> and 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 they have that mindset now, maybe of going out and saying, "Well, please help us. We need you." Yes. And what I like about your story here is that um, there was that culture shift, and and you've seen that that's actually resulted in a whole new era beginning. So that's absolutely right. And I think you know it's about being very deliberate about your language and the story. Mm. And so I think if you, we sat just about any one of the senior team in the seat here, you would be hearing very similar language mm-hmm. because we are so clear about what we do and how we do it. Mm. There's no questions. There's no, yeah. Mm. Always evolving, clearly. We're always evolving. We're very nimble and, um, you know, we, we have a culture of innovation as well. But it's yeah. about making sure we're bringing everyone on the same journey. Yeah, that's great. And uh, the whole organization could be on that journey together as well, right? So Entirely. they can be the storytellers. That's right. And what would be some of those things, you know, what we do and how we do it? What would be your response to that? Um, in terms of our offering to the business market? Yeah, yeah like if you're going in and you're, you know, we're in a lovely room here in your offices. If you were sitting down with a prospective client, um, yeah. how, how is it that you are, are pitching things to them? Well, the first thing we do is we turn things around. So rather than pitching at them, it's a question of actually building relationships and understanding people's organization's pain points. So I wouldn't go and knock on the door of the factory down the road and say, right, I've got this service to sell to you. I would form a relationship with some of the influential people within it and then just listen. Let them tell you what their issues are. Mm. We're really good at taking away the, 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 the bits and pieces that companies do that aren't their core and making that work really well for them, allowing them the space to focus on their core work. And, but you, you can't just go in and sell that. You have to really listen. You have to understand what the needs That's of the right. client are yeah. first. Yeah. I was interviewing somebody else, and they were saying, you know, we have two ears and we have one mouth. And there's a reason for that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you need to shut up and listen sometimes. Correct. I mm. mean, you know, actually, most good salespeople listen, don't speak. Mm. Mm. Um, and, um, and that's what we do. We go in and we, and, and we form, form relationships. Like I have a personal um, challenge to myself that mm. I fly a lot. I fly to Wellington just about every week. I fly to Auckland maybe every other week. I make it a challenge of myself that whoever I'm sitting next to on the plane, that by the end of it, mm. we've exchanged cards, we've formed a relationship, and we've made a plan for them to come and see us, just mm. come and have a look through. Great. And you never know. It's forming relationships. And it's, um, I mean, it becomes a bit of a joke here. Who have you, <laughs> who have you sat next to Paul Victim this time? <laughs> but um, it's great. It works really, really well. Yeah. So, well, the yeah. thing I like about that attitude is that every single person has a story. 
mm. and everyone has something that's of interest. Um, something I learned from my mother, she said, if you're sitting next to someone and you think they're not interesting, you just haven't asked the right questions yet because there is a story there and it's not them, it's not their issue that they don't want to talk, it's you. You haven't, right. you haven't gotten beneath the surface and, and kind of, well, tell me more about your life, you know? Very so, wise lady, I believe yeah. in that entirely, entirely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Okay, well that's a great approach. And then just, um, can you tell us a little bit more, just the practical stuff like um, what's going on today in the building, mm -hmm. what's happening in the factory, what type of um, contracts are you involved in, that type of thing, and how many people are actually in this building? Yeah, so let's start with that. So um, we have grown to about 95 people now today. Mm -hmm. um, just taking a step back from that, so our mm -hmm. offering to the people we're here to serve is providing a real tangible, exciting pathway for school leavers with learning disabilities. That's what we're really, really good at doing. So we only ever want to be part of the employment journey. We don't want to be the destination. So that's really important as well. And actually the great thing is because we've got such supportive relationships in our customers, they actually become the end employers in the end, which is, right. we've, so we really have got all bases covered. So in terms of what we do today, we, we have two quite diverse areas. So we're an employer, but we're also a training academy. Let me just start with the employer bit. So that basically, um, we operate a factory environment. We're a contract manufacturer um, in terms of what we do for our customers. We are split across four very distinct departments. So we have global industries, which um, is called global industries because most of our customers are international. So in there, we would refurbish um, Air New Zealand headsets from the international flights, as an example, managing all the logistics on their behalf as well. We repack um, UHT flavored milk for Fonterra. We shrink wrap tons and tons of things from big bits of wood to calendars to you know hampers to all sorts we'll do um, things like magazine inserts if you buy a magazine and it's got an insert we will do things like that we have a sewing department so very diverse um, type of kind of clean work some of it quite complex um, in global industries we then have our woodwork department which the name speaks for itself where we manufacture a range of and we have our own retail outlet so children's toys um, but more and more so getting into the manufacturing of commercial furniture so post the earthquake, we realized there was a huge opportunity when businesses were starting up again to actually go out and, um, and to basically sell our services in terms of um, manufacturing beautiful wooden furniture. So mm -hmm. around Christchurch, there are probably five or six um, um, restaurants or hospitality places who've purchased all their furniture from us. And that's really good because making a wooden toy is, is quite different to making a big chunky bit of furniture. Mm. Plus, it gives employees such a sense of, sense of pride when they'll go to a restaurant. They can say to their friends or their family, you know, I made this. Right. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, then one of our biggest growth areas is the processing center. So um, one of the things that we're very um, mindful of is we want to be, make sure that as well as the social side of things that we have a big environmental push too. So the processing center is basically taking stuff uh, across a variety of things and I'll go into that and um, diverting it away from landfill so mm. we do electronic recycling so uh, let me say um, gosh was it four years ago five years ago we won the contract for the TV take back um, dismantling of TVs when New Zealand went from analog TV to digital TV mm. and we basically would take a TV and uh, um, break it down into components and then get everything recycled um, mm. more recently we won the Sky Dakota contract mm. um, we also can um, take public drop-off things as well. We also um, take tons and tons and tons of crushed glass each year and we decanter it from big one-ton bags into 15 kg bags for one of our customers and that gets sent off to Australia as swimming pool filtration. So mm. it's more effective than sand which is great and it's, it's diverting the glass away from landfill. So the processing center is anything and everything that is stopping something going into landfill. Yeah, so there's actually that environmental element here as, as well. Totally, it, yes. Is, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's one of our big KPIs, one of our big drivers too. Um, we measure the amount of our income from the factory that comes from diverting something away from landfill and it's a number that we want to constantly grow. Mm. Um, then our final department, which is our biggest department, is our food repacking department. So we're basically, um, we're taking what we call raw product, which is, let's say somebody's imported, I don't know, um, chocolate from South America and um, we're then decantering it into um, whatever you would see on the supermarket shelf. Mm. So our big customers in there are foodstuffs or Murdoch's Manufacturing, one of their subsidiaries, um, Trade Aid, New Zealand, um, Nutrient Rescue. We have um, quite a few um, high profile customers in there and that's mm. a very, very, very busy department, mm. which is great. 
The final thing that we do is um, we offer back-end office services for other organisations. So we could do payroll services. We might manage somebody's um, accounting side of things. And that's really important because if somebody's leaving school and wanting to go into something that's more office-based, they're going to learn some of those skills better if they are working in an admin office rather than just in the factory. Right. So. It's a real diverse range of activities. Very diverse. So going yeah. back, just rewinding back to the days of the poppy, where mm. we had one contract, which was a poppy contract, right. a third of our income. A third of our income was from government funding, mm. and the other third was from you know bits and pieces, to now where we're not reliant on a single source of income, a single sector, even government's only about 10% of our income now. So quite right. a different landscape. And the government money hasn't shrunk, so that's remained the same. We've just grown everything else around it. Yeah. yeah. So when you joined... Um, do you recall like how many people were involved at that point? Because you said now there's about 95, is it? Yeah, I think about 65, I think, in the yeah. four years. We've probably um, added on another 30. Well, mm. I, these are um, full-time people. We also um, work really hard to bring in casual workers at the time when we are busy. Mm -hmm. And that's a great way of getting students, let's say in particular, to come and work at Kilmarnock because we, one of the things that we're really, really trying to do is to change the attitudes about disability. And you do that best by showing mm -hmm. and getting people immersed in working alongside people with disabilities. So that's a way that we try and um, um, achieve that is by bringing casuals in. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these students that will then go off to university and tell their friends how amazing yeah. it is here. So. so if people are interested, if people are listening and they're interested in that type of thing, would they go to your website? to find yep, out more entirely. is that the best yep, place yeah. absolutely all right well in the show notes we'll put a link to the to the a link or that'll be great yeah yeah and i think thing. students you know we feel we do a lot for them as well you know we really instill in them some incredible life skills by coming here mm. um in terms of hard work dedication empathy towards people and they, they go away in a kind of quite a leadership role it's it's mm. it's lovely to see some of the students we've had come through really blossom through the time that their engagement with Kilmarnock and and probably start thinking more about what is it that they want to do with their lives mm. you know because yeah it's quite I guess powerful it, I guess it gives them a different different perspective doesn't Entirely. it and um, when they start maybe they've thought in a certain way and then this opens their world to wow there's something else out there that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah. and just for you personally just thinking you know we talk a lot about purpose on this podcast um, I get the sense, I think I know what the answer is, but I'll just ask you, you know, uh, how does this job now, what you're doing now, align with your feelings on purpose and um, I guess, the, you know, your life and, and mm. what you're doing? Oh, it allows, it allows me to fulfill them. You know, I feel in a funny way that somehow everything I had done prior, what I'd experienced as a child, my, my business experience as a young adult um, through to now has it has all happened for a reason mm. um, in terms of now me being able to really fulfill that purpose that um that I feel so strongly about you mm. know I, I you know we really believe in a world that values diversity mm. um, and I believe that's really important not just in business but in society mm. and I'm now able to influence that because I guess what we do here is we um, we work with individuals to help them achieve what they want to achieve but more so than that, it's the kind of outreach that we do in terms of changing attitudes towards stability. I mean, we open our doors to so many groups of people that come through. Early this week, we had, I don't know how many hundreds, there seemed to be hundreds of five and six-year-olds that came through as mm. part of them learning about um, factory work and quality and things like that. And every person that comes through the door will go away with a slightly different perspective on what diversity means and the importance of it. So. Mm. Yeah. Well, the thing I love about doing these interviews and talking with people is just to hear their journeys and then to work out where they're at now. Like with you, you know, as a young child, you had that Latin American influence where the people and relationship is so important. And then in high school, you were, you know, looking at excluded people and included people. And then you've got the business experience and startup ways things are done. And yet now you're, you're kind of combining all of those threads that we've touched on That's through right. the interview and, and look at what you're able to do with it now. That's right. I keep having this conversation with my chairman to say, I don't know what next for me ever because, mm. you know, I feel like I've landed at what feels to me like being the best job for me mm. in the world. And because... I'm so passionate about what I do. That's half the reason I can succeed in it. Mm -hmm. So we keep having this joke about the fact that he's going to have to kick me off <laughs> when he feels <laughs> I've done my job because where else, you know, how, I could never go back into a purely commercial world now. Yeah. Well, you've, you've gotten a taste of the fulfillment, haven't you? From, That's right. From acting with purpose. And, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And if you could go back in time and, and talk to your younger self, like let's say you've just finished high school, mm -hmm. are there any sort of um, 
principles or things that you wish that you would have known earlier in life? Or do you feel, I mean, the answer may be that actually I had to go through everything to, I did. to I learn, but uh, just, yeah, is there anything that... Yeah, I, I know, I think you're right in what you were saying just then. I think I had to experience, I've, I had to experience how things don't work well mm. in order to be able to see how I can make them work better, you know? I had to witness um, um, managers or management who feel that driving the bottom line is the most important thing to realize that it isn't. Mm. I think so So many ways I'm really grateful for the hard times I've had in business um, when I felt very frustrated because without that, maybe I wouldn't see things the way I see now. Mm. Um, and if you hadn't had those moments like with the startup and realizing that this wasn't sustainable, mm -hmm. then it probably would, you probably never would have had that, well, let's go to Christchurch and, Entirely, and do something differently. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one thing that I look back, and I've learned, that I've learned this, less, this particular lesson probably only in the last couple of years, if not the last year, is I'm a perfectionist. And for a perfectionist, it's very, very hard to make yourself vulnerable because you're, mm. you, you know, the, the fear of failure is mm. too high, is too strong. I think if I could do one thing differently, it was understanding the importance of vulnerability because we would not be sitting where we're sitting now had I not been prepared to be vulnerable because the risk of not making this happen was so large that I would never have gone there because right. I would be you know, fearful of failure and letting everybody down. Mm. So I think if there's one thing I could do would be that is to understand the importance of vulnerability. Mm. And that's been a very recent lesson for me learned. Mm. And, and yeah. It, that it's okay to fail sometimes. It is okay to fail. And I think, you know, if you're a perfectionist, that's really hard to yeah. put yourself in any position which is going to even have a remote chance of failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think actually the word failure is probably the wrong word, isn't it? It's more like, um, you know, learning experiences. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it, you never, whatever it is, whatever you're going through, it, it's never truly a failure if you come out the other end. Having and, learned. Yeah, and having learned something. I know for my own life, when I look back, it's not the good times that I remember. It's the times that were those hard times. And wow, that was stressful. And through that, I had to question what I stand for, what I want to do with the rest of my life. You know, it was mm -hmm. those times that really helped to focus. So Absolutely. I yeah. agree entirely. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Michelle. It's been great to have you on. And I, I just am um, really appreciative of the time that you've given us today and the, the transparency with which you've spoken about your journey and your experience. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, I think you'll agree that that interview with Michelle was really interesting, just to look at her life and her journey and see how it's led her to where she is today. In the next episode, we're going to be talking with Tim Jones. Um, it's going to be a lot about B Corps. And here's an extract from that conversation. Hmm. When I remember I came home from work and I, I said to my wife, I can't do this anymore. Hmm. I, I cannot work in this industry anymore. Hmm. And for me, it was you know, the birth of my daughter and just sort of going, well, if I'm complicit in a lot of this stuff that's going on in this industry, I mean, I'm not actually actively doing it myself, but I'm giving it a level of agency just by being here. Mm. And I don't want to be doing what that's, you know, or, or involved with that. So that for me was like the, the, a real watershed moment, mm. which it then took maybe another two years for me to kind of really understand what my real purpose was what purpose meant i really enjoyed my interview with tim jones and i learned a huge amount about b corps and what they are and i hope you can join us on that next episode if you've enjoyed this interview and feel like the content was helpful then it'd be great if you could share it with other people and in itunes you can do that by clicking at the bottom left in the little box with the arrow sticking up and if you are able to leave a rating and review in itunes that'd be great too because it helps to get the message out so I really hope you can join me in an upcoming episode. That's all for now.